one, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Thanks for joining this recording of the No Nuclear Submarines Public Forum, organised by Green Left and Socialist Alliance and held on Tuesday the 28th of September. It was recorded on stolen Aboriginal land. The meeting begins with Chairperson Chloe De Silva introducing speakers. Yep, uh, so the three speakers we have tonight uh, is Maureen Penjueli. Uh She's the coordinator of uh, coordinator and Pacific of the Pacific Network on Globalisation, or PANG. And then we have Joe... Uh, Carolan uh, from Socialist uh, Aotea um, Roa and Unite Union Senior Organiser. And then we have uh, Felix Dance, a climate activist and civil engineer and Socialist Alliance member. Uh, the speakers will each um, speak for about 10 minutes or so, and then we'll open the meeting up for questions and discussions. So we'll, we'll just get started with our first speaker, um, Maureen, if you're if you're ready. Uh, good, a very warm Bulavinaka from Silva, Fiji, and uh, really uh, thank you to the organizers, the Green Left and the Socialist Alliance for this invitation to participate tonight on what is emerging uh, to be a highly controversial uh, set of discussions uh, around AUKUS. Um, I have a, a, a PowerPoint presentation. It's partly just to help me stick uh, to the timeframes that we've been allocated. Uh, I had initially thought we had about 15 minutes, but 10 minutes is fine. Um, and I really wanted to just acknowledge the presence of a lot of the anti-nuclear uh, and free Pacific uh, activists that are present in the, I can see lots of familiar faces. Uh, and so it's really wonderful to see them uh, join online um, uh, this evening. Um, we should, what I'd like to attempt to do is really to locate and contextualize AUKUS. Um, it's one of several defense and security uh, packs. Next slide, please. Uh, you know, this is not the first time that the Pacific region is faced with nuclear threats or nuclear injustice. Uh, we have a region that has a long history of enduring colonization by nuclear powered states. Um, if you look at the history, it includes the US, Britain, and France, and the role of Australia with the nuclear-powered alliances. Um, we know that uh, during the colonial era and up until today, most of the territories in the Pacific has given all of these countries significant ocean power uh, through these territories in the Pacific. And I think that's quite important when we think through the implications of AUKUS today. Um, we should view AUKUS uh, as one of the most recent uh, in a long history of peace and security alliances and defense pacts uh, between nuclear powered states um, that have systematically, in my view, kept the Pacific Ocean and its people at the tip of nuclear arms race, nuclear war and war mongering and the enabling military infrastructure under the pretext of peace and security. Uh, if you look at AUKUS, I've really just highlighted the A, Australia, the role of Australia. We understand the significance of the UK, post practice 
uh, Brexit and its real attempt to reestablish global Britain um, today. So I think in that context, we really can see the posturing of the UK in this part of the world again. Um, US obviously seeks to maintain global dominance through its military and defense position in response to what we are told is a common enemy. Um, and this is despite Pacific Island government's foreign policies, which have been very articulate and makes clear that our countries are friends to all and enemies to none. And the long history of diplomatic relationships that our countries have with China, uh, most of it dating back to independence of independent uh, Pacific Island states, perhaps with the exception of the Northern Pacific countries. Um, next slide, please. Uh, again, there's this really understanding the wider narrative that Australia plays quite significantly in the region, the strategic use of infrastructure development, development and financing, uh, aid in particular also, but in relation to deep water ports. So I think again, you know, even if we want to just look at this through the lens of nuclear powered submarines, it's always useful to keep an eye on the role that Australia plays uh, in terms of infrastructure development and financing. Uh, we look at the strategic bases in the Pacific and the Long Brum Naval Base in Manus. Our province has certainly regained the interest of the US and Australia. Uh, we know that in just this year, a um, couple of months ago, the Australian Defence Force allocated 175 million to upgrade that particular base. The Australian company won that bid and obviously US naval personnel are involved in the upgrade of the Manus uh, Lombrum Naval Base. Uh, here is the statement by the PNG Defence Force Major uh, General Toropo, and he says that the upgrade would, be, would significantly improve PNG's maritime security capabilities uh, given China's growing presence in the region, uh, presenting both PNG and the rest of the Pacific with this, this new threat by China. In the landscape of defense and security alliances and pacts, again, this is not the first time the Pacific governments and citizens haven't been consulted, despite the fact that the majority of our countries are now independent sovereign island states. Unlike when we first encountered the nuclear history and testing, most of the countries were under colonial rule at that time. So this is not the first time that our governments uh, have been caught by surprise by such announcements of PACs that, are, that present specific governments and citizens as beneficiaries, mere spectators without agency. Um, so I, I suppose in many ways, this announcement is presented, we have a common enemy. This is in the interest of both peace and security of Pacific Island countries. Uh, and this is really, really in Pacific Island people's uh, interest to do so. So how do we respond organize to the hyper-militarization of the Pacific Ocean? Uh, when we look at the, the hyper-militarization, it includes long history of nuclear weapons test, nuclear radioactive waste shipments, uh, proposals for nuclear storage and disposal, nuclear powered submarines, ballistic missiles test, war games, uh, and increasingly foreign naval bases uh, being set up in sovereign territories in the Pacific. So, you know, we, we do have 
uh, just a reminder that this is with not without um, Pacific people and long history of resistance and mobilizing to achieve a vision of a nuclear free and independent Pacific. So, I mean, for many of us on this call tonight and viewers, we, we really understand the testing legacy in the Pacific by the United States, Britain and France, uh, the various different programs. Uh, the Pacific Ocean remains highly strategic uh, in terms of defense uh, and military interest. Uh, the Pacific Ocean has been proving grounds, the theater of war. Uh, the US has conducted 67 atomic and hydrogen bomb tests in Bikini and Anatok Atolls in RMI and in the Northern Pacific. Next slide, please. I'm gonna try and skip very quickly in terms of the history. Obviously, Britain, uh, its tests in Christmas Island uh, in Middle Pacific, if you like, from 1952 to 1957. And then of course, France with one of the largest 193 atmospheric and underground tested Mororoa and Fungatofa atolls in French occupied Polynesia. Again, you see lots of these imageries. These are quite famous pictures of resistance across the Pacific. Uh, to bring an end to nuclear testing in the region. Uh, next slide, please. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from the formidable visionary uh, leaders of the NFIP movement that we can apply to the hyper-militarized state and the kinds of security defense pact that the region is currently faced with. Um, again, protests, uh, very strong, uh, interactions between Pacific Rim countries, Australia, New Zealand, and uh, Pacific Island countries, quite diverse in movements, churches, trade unions, academics, students, women's groups, indigenous leaders, actively opposing the test and subsequently uh, nuclear transport or shipment of nuclear waste through the region, uh, nuclear powered submarines. Um, so it has been quite a vibrant uh, and very important movement, movement in the Pacific, but also globally to make the Pacific a nuclear-free um, region. Again, these are some of the critical groups. And again, there are some of the founding members on this call tonight, on this webinar tonight. Um, these are some of the new movements that are emerging. Uh, one of the key things is really, how do we transfer intergenerational knowledge uh, in terms of resistance, how do we build a resilient movement uh, across the Pacific? Uh, this is some of the key movements that have really taken up uh, the vision of the nuclear and free and independent Pacific, really calling for nuclear ways, not nuclear ways. Uh, youth movements such as the Young Solwara Pacific, uh, the Marshall Island Students Association, Mission for the Pacific, really have continued the legacy of nuclear justice activism in the Pacific. And this is just some slides of some of the actions that they've taken, uh, both targeting Pacific Island states, uh, but also nuclear uh, powered uh, states and nations also, including Australia. Again, this is just, just a show of um, a lot of the solidarity actions that they've taken of many different issues. This is on the Runit Dome, uh, again, one of those historical legacy issues that's still remaining in the Pacific. 
this is the most recent one in which the uh, under President Oscar Temaru, there was a call out to the Pacific to stand with French occupied uh, Polynesia uh, and particularly the struggle for um, France to begin the long journey to address, acknowledge the nuclear legacy and begin the long road to reparation, uh, restoration and justice for the people of Maui Nui. So we've seen a very strong reaction by uh, New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, uh, really affirming New Zealand's long-standing nuclear-free policy. And also what, what does that mean for this new announcement of Australian submarines being developed? Um, and I think her position, she makes a position very clear, um, which is that New Zealand's position in relation to the prohibition of nuclear-powered vessel remains unchanged and is banned within New Zealand's waters. Uh, Fiji's Prime Minister also challenged in his uh, speech at the UN's 76th General Assembly, calling on world leaders, um, and in particular, uh, taking a shot at AUKUS, saying that if you can spend trillions of dollars on missiles, drones and nuclear submarines, surely you can find climate actions a reflection of the significant differences in terms of how we interpret security, uh, what is key priorities for security for Pacific Island countries uh, in, in uh, recognition of what AUKUS is proposing. So obviously climate, climate actions, uh, climate emergency is the top in terms of human uh, security for Pacific Island countries. Um, next slide. Uh, again, this is really, really where uh, there's lots of concerns that the kinds of financing um, for this deal under AUKUS would really deviate from where Pacific priorities sit, which is to address the climate uh, crisis, the decline in ocean health. Uh, this remains key priorities for Pacific Island leaders, but also um, uh, activists and movements at large. Obviously, there's a real emphasis around COVID-19 recovery and certainly rebuilding um, Pacific people's resilience um, and not kinds of investments that we're seeing going into uh, AUKUS. So the basis of some of our real significant strength, I think at the moment really lies in the Rarotonga Treaty. Um, I think this is one of the basis that we have to think about how we leverage uh, given that Australia is a party to the Rarotonga Treaty, obviously this is in addition to the uh, TW, uh, the Treaty on Prohibitions of uh, Nuclear Weapons, of which the Pacific states, independent states, constitutes the majority at this state. So over 50 uh, state member states have, have signed and ratified the treaty, of which uh, a fifth of that is constitutes the Pacific. So I think we need to think through what does the Rarotonga Treaty mean? How do we try to bring it into force uh, given Australia's role as a, a signatory to the Rarotonga Treaty um, to address, to resolve some of these complexities around uh, AUKUS that, that Australia signed on? And these are some of the key things just to keep in mind uh, that the nuclear, the Rarotonga Treaty offers. It's quite, um, extensive in its geographical scope. Uh, it is one of two uh, nuclear-free zones uh, in addition to 
the one in Latin America. Um, it contributes to nuclear non-proliferation and disarmament. Um, and it certainly is being brought into life by uh, Pacific Island leaders. It's a mandated and, and starting the work, the long work of ensuring a nuclear-free uh, Pacific. Um, so I think that there, this is something that perhaps in discussion we would need to think through, how do we bring this to life? Uh, and how do we make this work in defense of Pacific people's interest uh, and security. Again, we're really seeing, this is some of the new trends to monitor in terms of the security defense packs. Uh, certainly Australia's step up in the Northern Pacific. Uh, we've seen Australia open up diplomatic missions in Marshall Islands and Palau. Uh, Australia is part of this ongoing um, large scale warfare exercises in the Pacific Ocean. Um, so, you know, this is, this is really understanding Australia's uh, security defense interest and how it's using bilateral and strengthening of its bilateral relationships with the Northern Pacific. Again, just to come back to this whole uh, fact that most of this defense and security pacts that are announced really is about the Pacific but never with the Pacific. So we're never, our, our governments are not consulted. Um, and certainly citizens of the Pacific have never been consulted, but assume that this is all done for world peace, uh, for our security, and certainly for the common good of all mankind. Um, and so I think we need to be rethinking the regional uh, architecture, um, Pacific Islands Forum in particular, uh, the role of the Fiji government as the current chair of the Pacific Islands Forum uh, in trying to get security defense packs to go through a consultative process with sovereign states in the region. Um, I think this would really work well, uh, considering the kinds of announcements that's catching many of our governments by surprise, that's unilaterally uh, being announced and so I think we need to really consider where processes for consultations need to take place within the regional architecture. Um, okay, so I've really, really gone over time. Apologies, Chloe. I think I'm just towards the end. That, that's okay. Take your time. Thanks, Maureen. So just, just to really emphasize, the, the, and again, about this framework called the Indo-Pacific Strategy. This is a framework that does not include Pacific Island states, nor its citizens. This is a framework that is negotiated and signed on by external powers. Um, so it's not about the Pacific, it's always about China, uh, despite the fact that our governments have made very strong and clear uh, diplomatic announcements about our relationship with China. Thank you, I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for your presentation, Maureen. I'm sure everyone found that very useful. Um, the voices from the Pacific are so important. Uh, and just a reminder, all the speakers will have more opportunities to speak throughout the meeting. So have your questions ready. Um, I can see some uh, come through the chat. So um, I'll pass those on to the speakers so they can respond a bit later. Um, and we also have quite a few peace activists from interstate online. And I think um, there are a few people from different parts of the Pacific um, here. So a very well, warm welcome to all of you. I'd like to now introduce our second speaker for tonight, uh, Joe Carolyn. 
from socialist um, Aotearoa, um, a revolutionary socialist anti-capitalist group and, um, and from Unite Unions, a senior organizer. I'll throw it over to you, Joe. Kira, and thank you uh, to our speakers and to our audience tonight. Uh, I speak to you from uh, a very big Pacifica city, <laughs> Auckland, Tamaki Makauro. And as the speaker previous said, I mean, I think the movement um, to keep New Zealand nuclear free um, involved many, many uh, forces, um, involved uh, churches, involved the unions, involved Pacifica uh, in quite large numbers on the streets here in Auckland during the, uh, during the 60s, 70s and 80s. And I suppose the achievement of that mass movement from the 60s to the 80s was the New Zealand Nuclear Free Zone Disarmament and Arms Control Act in 1987, which prohibits uh, nuclear armed warships of any nation uh, from entering the territorial seas of Aotearoa, New Zealand. So um, I just wanted to talk briefly about that movement because I think it's it's, it's that that is the power rather than regional governments. Uh, uh, we see, for example, how imperial powers or sub-imperial powers like to court uh, smaller nations. Uh, for example, Israel wanting its votes in the, uh, in the United Nations will uh, uh, attempt to bribe uh, um, small governments. I think it's really the movement of uh, people power throughout the uh, Pacifica region that, um, that that can give us those uh, results. I mean, if we went back to the 50s and 60s with the uh, creation of nuclear weapons, uh, many people feared what we'd seen in Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, could happen in, in several conflicts in Korea, in Vietnam. And so the formation of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, CND, and later... Uh, with the ecological uh, crisis, uh, the formation of Greenpeace uh, in the early 70s by a former uh, 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 um, soldier. Um, these two organizations, uh, between them, um, mobilized tens of thousands of people throughout uh, Aotearoa. They uh, uh, launched one of the largest petitions against nuclear uh, weapons in the in in the early 60s, and by uh, by the 80s, uh, had made the uh, nuclear weaponry uh, a, a major national issue uh, for the 1984 election. Uh, Robert Muldoon, who was the head of the National Party, which is our Conservative Party here. Um, called a snap election <laughs> when he was drunk, <laughs> uh, claiming that he opposed this feminist anti-nuclear uh, campaign and wanted to give it a thrashing. And he lost that election uh, to David Lange and Labour, who moved quite quickly um, to declare uh, New Zealand a nuclear uh, a free zone. And there was the famous debate, I don't know if people have seen it, in the Oxford University, where he debated one of the uh, representatives of US imperialism, say, I could smell the uranium on your breath. So this was quite a popular policy from a Labour government that was uh, quite uh, uh, contradictory. I mean, that was the same Labour government that gave us um, neoliberalism 
here in New Zealand. But uh, on this policy, it, it gained quite uh, a, a, a lot of support uh, from the people of New Zealand, um, primarily because um, it was also seen as standing up to violence uh, and not just that abstract violence of a nuclear war that could happen in the future, but the violence that was used against protesters and flotillas when they sailed out in solidarity with Pacifica people to Mororoa Atoll and others. Um, there was a, a, a ship called the Viga in 1973, uh, which was violently attacked by the French paramilitaries. And so these kind of clashes um, um, made people, ordinary people here, side more and more with the uh, anti-nuclear free uh, movement and it was also seen as an anti-colonial uh, movement with these powers from far away France, America um, uh, whatever trying to impose their will and 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 and, uh, and detonate these uh, poisonous weapons you know very close to where pe people were living in the region you know people um, uh, really opposed that and so it comes to where we are today, where we have this new AUKUS uh, um, uh, military alliance, and New Zealand sits outside of that. And I think everybody here is very happy that we stand outside that military alliance. Uh, the Americans were furious uh, when uh, New Zealand uh, declared itself anti-nuclear, um, and, and downgraded New Zealand from ally status to friend. And I think people are very happy with that, that we're not the ally of a brutal imperialist power. One year later, of course, here in the harbour in Auckland, we had a terrorist attack by the government of France that bombed the Rainbow Warrior, uh, killing Fernando Pierre, the photographer, um, but injuring uh, many others. My friend Susie was on that boat at the time. And this was a, uh, an act of terrorism by the French government in, a, in an operation they called Operation Satanique, a Satanist operation, uh, but which was designed to punish the anti-nuclear movement um, for, uh, the, for humiliating uh, uh, these powers. And I think this even galvanized uh, uh, people here in Aotearoa uh, further to an anti-nuclear position, which means it's very difficult even for the right wing here um, um, to argue that we should have nuclear weapons and nuclear ships in our waters or that we should be part of any uh, alliance with that. New Zealand is part of the Five Eyes network, um, the, the global spy uh, thing with Canada as well. Um, and um, recently, peace activists here have been protesting against rocket labs uh, which was a, a famous New Zealand startup, or a little kind of rocket um, company that now uh, uh, conducts um, uh, payloads uh, uh, in launch for for U.S. military. So uh, we're not clean uh, uh, clean hands by any stretch of the imagination. But um, in terms of uh, open alliances uh, with the U.S. Uh, or the UK or Australia around nuclear weapons, uh, there would be quite a lot of uh, uh, um, resistance here. I think also um, what's worth noting is that um, the ruling classes here in, in, and represented by both parties have a more uh, neutral or independent approach to the regional uh, rivalry between the United States and China. China is a huge 
uh, economic uh, trading partner here with with New Zealand. Quite a lot of uh, dairy products, Fenterra, for example, uh, New Zealand wine, etc. A lot of that produce uh, being sold in China at the minute, and so. Um, I think uh, not only Labour, but, uh, you know, a lot of business people around the National Party uh, would uh, would question why we would um, cut off our nose to spite our face um, and get involved in a trade war uh, with this with this uh, trading partner um, at the minute. Um, here in New Zealand, we wonder uh, what are the motives behind uh, this this uh, this alliance, um, certainly Biden and the Democratic Party returning to a more interventionist, imperialist uh, uh, approach, um, differing from Trump, who was you know full of uh, rhetoric, etc., but um, 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 had a more isolationist uh, approach, I suppose, in in most cases, um, in the United Kingdom. We see, you know, uh, a party trying to reclaim past imperialist glories uh, post-Brexit. Uh, they got themselves into all sorts of trouble in Ireland at the minute. But um, here we go, another uh, imperialist venture in the South Pacific, tally-ho. Uh, and, of course, uh, um, Australia, is, or uh, your right-wing government in Australia, uh, wanting to lick the boots of uh, of whoever's in charge in Washington, so a very anglophone uh, alliance uh, of former imperial powers and and its sub imperial power in Australia, you know, uh, talking about um, you know um, how they can project their power here in the Pacific without any consultation, as the previous speaker said, with the people uh, who live in this area. And most people in New Zealand, I think, looked on this kind of new alliance with that kind of, well, who's behind it? You know, Biden, who's just been humiliated in Afghanistan. You know, the Brits who've been uh, in all sorts of uh, trouble with um, with Brexit and uh, Australia's right wing government. You know, is it trying to revitalize an industry around uranium and uranium mining, I think, would be. Uh, the question that we would have, you know, why, why, why this um, uh, uh, sudden move? Uh, again, the uh, the French uh, as well. I, I, I hear from back home that there's quite uh, uh, quite uh, um, uh, strong reaction from the French government to losing out their uh, their um, contract to sell submarines to Australia, and that will have. Uh, I'm sure um, uh, um, some impact on Australian uh, uh, trade and stuff with France. So, so uh, anyway, greetings from uh, from nuclear free <laughs> Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, if people power can keep warships uh, out of ore harbours, then I think there are uh, um, some lessons to be learned about uh, what what people power can do. Uh, we are a signatory of the treaty of uh, Rarotonga, so we will uh, uh, look at our obligations there and popularise those to, to help. And if there are protests against this um, uh, by uh, our comrades in Fiji or in Australia or wherever, uh, we would be happy to um, put pickets on here 
in Arturo in solidarity with you. Kia kaha. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks so much, Joe, for being here. And please stick around for questions later. Uh, now it's time for our last speaker, Felix Dance. Felix is a long-term climate activist and civil engineer who is also standing as one of the Socialist Alliance candidates for the Victorian Senate. Uh, over to you, Felix. Great. Thanks, Chloe. And thanks a lot to the uh, previous speakers. That was really terrific. Enjoyed every minute of that. Now, there are many different aspects to this APIS alliance and the subs deal, and all of them are bad. So for one thing, there's the fact that the new security alliance locks Australia into a pact with the US and the UK, two huge imperialist powers on the other side of the world. Then there's the spectacular cost of ditching the old subs contract with France, itself a flawed deal, and embarking on who knows how much extra cost with our American superiors. These are all resources that could go into any other endeavour we could choose to undertake, health, education, transport, or dealing with climate change, especially in our region. Then there's also the nuclear aspect. The deal puts high-powered nuclear reactors right into Australia's control. The vanguard of both the local nuclear industry, as Joe suggested, and because the subs require highly enriched uranium to operate, the encouragement of the development of nuclear weapons, both at home and for our neighbours. Australia is to be given access to US and British technology to build nuclear-powered submarines in Adelaide. The two nuclear-armed and powered countries will exploit a loophole in the International Non-Proliferation Treaty that allows nuclear material for non-prescribed military activity. Finally, this is a big screw you to China and all the Pacific nations surrounding us. So we'll force these nations to pick sides between a defensive China and an aggressive but waning power in faraway Britain and America. This move will serve only the interests of warmongers, military industrialists and our imperial overlords overseas to the detriment of the ordinary working people of Australia and the region. Now, from a technical standpoint, it might be tempting to think that this new deal is just a replacement for the old subs contract we had with France. However, it's actually quite a different beast. These subs are much bigger and have a much further range, all the better to reach China and follow its naval forces around the Pacific. Strangely enough, they'll also be more easily detectable because the nuclear reactor won't be able to be turned off. So unlike the previous diesel electric design that could run on batteries, it'll be actually quite noticeable around the waters. It's also worth noting that the fuel for these submarines will not be able to be produced locally, which would be the case for diesel. Instead, we would have to import the enriched uranium from the US, forcing us to be permanently dependent on them for the fleet to operate. Of course, the alternative would be to develop our own nuclear industry. More on this later. And of course, there's the enormous cost. Australia has wasted over $2 billion on the existing French contract already with an unknown payout fee for breaking out of it. And while the old subs cost was already blowing out past $90 billion, equivalent to the entire cost of the hugely inefficient JobKeeper program, the new subs will certainly cost way more than this, with some estimates starting at $130 billion, but it's unknowable. And most of that will go to British and American military, military contractors. And all to have nothing delivered for 15 to 20 years, by which time either they'll be obsolete or militarily redundant. They've been called white elephants of the sea, but maybe they're more like white whales, given our leaders' embarrassing enthusiasm for them. 
But as much as it's painful to see so much money being thrown into the ocean for something so useless, there are even bigger problems with this program. It's immediately clear that the target for these floating arsenals is China. Specifically, it looks like America is keen for Australia to use these subs to hunt out China's own submarines, four of which are armed with nuclear weapons. This puts us right at the pointy end of a potential nuclear war. China uses its fleet of nuke-launching subs as a deterrent against being attacked in a first strike at its land bases. Is this really the role that we want to play in the Pacific? It'll also put our neighbours in the region into a difficult position. How will Indonesia and the Philippines respond to ascending nuclear war machines through their straits and around their islands? If Australia is armed with a nuclear military, would this encourage Japan and other nations to follow suit? Australia must seem like one of the biggest imperial lapdogs of the modern era. Despite having only a vestigial colonial relationship with Britain and living on the other side of the world to both Britain and the US, we seem determined to follow them into whatever military adventure they cook up, lately in the Middle East and now with Chinese aggression. But there is a history here, as well as middle power Australia deciding to hitch its future with the old Anglo-American alliance, the Australian ruling class has been a willing participant and even championed Australia's participation in wars and invasions overseas, going all the way back to the, to the 1800s. Sometimes Australian governments have pushed for either Britain or the US to, to take an even more aggressive stance, for instance, in Vietnam, and later with John Howard's enthusiasm for invading Iraq. If the Australian ruling class was hostile to the AUKUS military alliance against China, the headlines in the media would be attacking the government rather than just noting that this is the new deal. The intensification of Australia's long alliance with these two big imperialist powers cements its role as part of a US push to block China's economic development by force if necessary. It serves in complete opposition to the working class's interests to behave aggressively towards China. The people of Australia and overseas have absolutely no beef with China. And how will China respond? From their point of view, the optics are appalling. Many in China have long memories and are still smarting for the, from the humiliation of the white imperialists dominating their country during the opium wars of the 19th century. For all of our engagement with China on economic issues from a few years ago, the mask has slipped as we return to our rightful place as the Anglo-imperialists of yesteryear. They will certainly see us as unable to tolerate an economically successful rising China, clinging instead to the decaying powers of the old order. The only people who will benefit from sowing the seeds of a war against China are the political leaders who would rally the nation behind the control of a war economy. It certainly doesn't serve the workers, only the capitalists and the imperialists. The militarization of the Asia Pacific against China began quite a few years ago. The US President Barack Obama's pivot to Asia and then the forced posture agreement meant that Australia has been complicit in a major military buildup against China. The US shifted 60% of its Navy to the Pacific, an increase of 10%. US Marines were based in Darwin and US military aircraft were given access to Australian bases in the Northern Territory. It's likely that the US will be seeking out new bases in the Pacific and possibly even a permanent naval base in Australia. Of course, the short-term political gains are also obvious. The current leadership under Morrison is embattled and they only have one move in the playbook to bring things around, distract the electorate with a new announceable 
and wedge the Labour Party on jobs and nationalism. Damn the expense. The nuclear issue has also been a long burning fuse in the wedge arsenal, while coal power plants, coal power plants pit good blue collar jobs against the smarmy climate science. Nuclear has the added benefit of seeming to those not looking closely to be emissions free. Never mind the carbon intensive construction and servicing costs, nor the uselessly long and costly build times and completely ignoring the risks of Chernobyl-style accidents, of course. Australia signed the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons Treaty in 1973 and the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty in 1998, when the anti-nuclear movement was still a force. The Morrison government has refused to sign the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which came into force in January and now has 55 signatories, although none with nuclear capability. Australia is, however, a party to the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty of Rarotonga that was mentioned. The new submarines will also not be welcome in New Zealand, which has maintained a ban on such potentially hazardous vessels entering its port, understandable given the, given the possibility of a radioactive leak or nuclear accident, as uh, Joe's pointed out. But the real goal is to switch us over to a nuclear economy without stirring the population's anti-nuclear sentiment. There are hundreds of billions of dollars worth of uranium sitting underground in Australia and the big mining companies would love to be able to sell it all at enriched prices. Even though the independent Senator Rex Patrick told the media that it would be difficult for Australia to have nuclear power submarines without a domestic nuclear power capability. Be ready to hear this a lot in the coming years. By springing the deal on us as a nuclear fait accompli, Labor is put in the position of either fully supporting the move while trying to quell its sceptical ranks, or having to put forward a position that at odds with the ruling class and mount a serious challenge to the proposal. And of course, they've chosen the predictable path. And not only is the timing perfected for an election in the next few months, but the current COVID lockdowns in Victoria and New South Wales are a serious impediment to mobilising the significant anti-nuclear forces on the streets. With the media and the two main political parties on board, it is only the left in forums such as this one where we can voice our opposition and try to turn the tide against a nuclear future and against a war with China. Socialist Alliance is totally opposed to Australia investing billions of dollars in either the French or the US submarines. We are opposed to Australia being a partner to US or European military interventions because their only purpose is to maintain the current violent, unjust and exploitative world order. Every cent allocated to the submarines is money that should be spent on projects that forge a more just and sustainable world for all. We call for the closure of all US military bases and a stop on US warships and submarines visiting Australia. And we must oppose the new AUKUS Treaty and its nuclear submarine fleet. So thanks for that. Back to you, Chloe. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Felix, and to all our speakers. Um, you'll have time again to speak um, at the end um, to answer any questions anyone would like to ask. Um, and if you would like to ask a question, just put your name in the chat box, um, or you can, if you don't want to use the mic, um, you can just yeah, type in your question and I'll read it out. Um, you'll have three minutes to speak. And while people are thinking about what they might want to 
ask. Um, I'll just make some announcements. Uh, we have a very special event coming up next month, the Eco-Socialism Conference um, that's jointly sponsored by Socialist Alliance and Green Left, which is a series of workshops and panels um, that will be held online and in person. Um, depending on um, health restrictions, of course. Um, uh, it will be hosted from different cities across the country, including Brisbane, Geelong, Melbourne, Perth, and Sydney. Uh, and the program will feature local and international speakers and will cover interesting topics like trade unions and the green transition we need and fighting the right, uh, building an anti-capitalist left, and many more. And that will be uh, held on um, between Saturday the 23rd of October to Sunday the 24th of October and I think there's also a Friday uh, session as well. Um, hopefully someone will post the, the link to purchase tickets um, in the chat box so you can um, you can do that um, and uh, Socialist Alliance is, is the is a co-host of this forum. So if you would like to know more about Socialist Alliance or if you'd like to participate in our socialism or Marxism discussions or get our activist calendar uh, and get involved in any environmental and social justice campaigns and movements or, or you'd like us to support any campaigns, just please reach out. Um, a link will be put in the chat box to stay in touch. Uh, and there are likely to be actions around the country when things open up again, hopefully. Uh, Green Left is also a co-host of this forum. Um, Green Left is a not-for-profit activist media, it has a website, a weekly print copy, social media, and a weekly Green Left radio show on 3CR, as well as doing regular podcasts. So please check it out. You can become a Green Left supporter for as little as $5 a month. Um, and the link to become a supporter will be put in the chat box. Uh, and Green Left and uh, Green Left and uh, Social Science will publicize any groups that um, develop for ongoing campaigning. Um, Social Science have a, a long history in the anti-war movements, and um, yeah, there was a recently a very um, undemocratic law passed by the Liberal government with the backing of Labor, disadvantaging smaller parties like us. So, if you would like to help us retain our electoral registration and see us appear on the ballot papers. Um, and be able to vote for people like Felix who just spoke. Um, we encourage you to take up our free membership option uh, to support Socialist Alliance's electoral registration and help us fight back against this attack on small parties, especially parties who are strongly opposed to this terrible nuclear powered uh, submarine project. Okay, so I'll open it up for discussion um, now. Oh, I'm just gonna <laughs> scroll through the the list here, I've just got a bit of, um, okay. Okay, so I've got uh, on the list, Stephen Daly, if you'd like to speak, um, and then we'll probably take two more questions or speakers, and then we'll throw it back to the speakers. Thanks, Stephen. Hi, I'm from the Independent Peaceful Australia Network Coordinating Committee. Um, and by the way, we had a successful demo in Adelaide on Friday by uh, coalitional groups um, opposed to the submarines. Um, I'm a bit concerned that the commentary, the critical commentary on the subs deal has focused on the deployment of these subs in the 2040s, by which time they'll probably be very obsolete um, and uh, in a very different international uh, setting. But I think we need to take more seriously Dutton's comment, the Defence Minister of Australia's comment, 
last Sunday that they're considering leasing US submarines uh, in the interim to fill the so-called sub-gap. Um, I think we should take this very seriously because this really is much more favorable to the Americans uh, because these subs would be able to be deployed in, what, two, three, four years. And I'm pretty convinced that the Americans want to confront militarily the Chinese in the next decade, not in the 2040s. Um, so effectively, Australia would be paying for American submarines that would be deployed anyway. And the Americans would want them to be nuclear armed like their other subs are, which would really build the pressure on Australia to give up its its non-deployment of nuclear weapons. As well as that, of course, we've got the build-up in the Northern Territory. Uh, American nuclear-armed bombers will be able to land there very shortly at Tyndall Air Force Base um, and possibly even intermediate-range missiles deployed there that can reach southern China. So I think we're, we're not talking about 20 years. We're talking about four or five years before... Uh, well, possibly all hell breaks loose. Thank you, uh, Stephen, for for that. Um, okay, we have a few questions. I'm just trying to, sorry, scroll and just find them. Uh, okay, so uh, there's a question from Nico Lika, uh, a question to the first of the two speakers, so to Maureen. Uh, what opportunities are there for uh, vassal states like Nauru and PNG to grow movements opposing their government? Um, likely co-option for this in, in this. Um, and are there any, is there anybody else who wanted to, to say anything, make a comment or, or ask a question before I throw it back to the speakers? Going yeah, once. Uh, John, John Hallam. Um, okay, go for it, John. Yeah, no, I, I'm from <clears throat> people from, from for nuclear disarmament, and I mean, obviously, we're deeply concerned about the um, the possibility, first of all, that the new AUKUS leads to a confrontation with China, which has as its ultimate result, um, if everything goes sort of right to the very end of things. Uh, leads to the end, um, in other words, to nuclear war. Um, but I think there's a more prosaic sort of a hierarchy of questions, which I did, in fact, send you. Uh, the first question that needs to be asked of any government is, why the hell do you need subs, any kind of subs? Uh, the second question is, well, why have you gone for a brand of sub that is not invisible when there are subs available that really are invisible. And of course, the nuclear subs are noisy. They leave a trail of hot water and radiation, so they are detectable. The air independent subs, such as the Gotland class sub, which cost about a tenth of the cost of a nuclear sub, are literally invisible. They disappear when they're on battery power. And everyone talks about how important it is for the sub to be invisible, but um, we're going to get one that isn't. Um, and finally, of course, there is the 2040 question. Um, I mean, what, what possible use is something 
which is going to come down the track probably 10 times over budget um, and 10 years too late, if not 20 years too late. Thanks, John. I did send your questions to the speakers and I forgot to read them out. Uh, I might throw it back to the speakers. Um, maybe Maureen first um, and then Joe uh, and then uh, Felix, if they wanted to comment on any of those questions. And then we do have uh, Sue next on the list. Sorry about that, everybody. I think Maureen's having a, a few issues with the internet. Uh, maybe, um, Joe, if you wanted to respond to any of those uh, questions from the audience, um, you're welcome to do so now. If you're still there. Sorry, is there anything in particular? Um, well, just in response to uh, some of the questions that John uh, raised, um, Nico uh, Lika also asked uh, a, a question, I, but I think that was, sorry, that was directed to Maureen, um, but you're welcome to answer it. What opportunities are there for vassal states uh, such as Nauru and PNG to grow movements opposing their government, um, likely corruption for the, in this? Um, yeah, but yeah. if you wanted well, to I, say I, that, I, th I think when it comes to regional governments, I mean, um, again, we have to rely on people power and not on the various different political classes of those islands that I think could be bought off one way or the other, you know. Um, um, I think uh, our experience of working with activists from Fiji, from, um, from other islands, uh, Samoa and Tonga, you know, can be that sometimes the ruling classes in those countries uh, see the benefit in aligning themselves with... Uh, with powerful nations um, when there is competition. And I suppose, um, you know, issues of national sovereignty um, kind of aside, you know, that, 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 that this is a, an alliance that's been made by, by ruling classes and that we need uh, a people's resistance in, in, in the Pacific. Chloe. Definitely need a people's resistance. I'm hoping Maureen is back online. I was trying to message her. Are you back, Maureen? Yeah, I am. Uh, and thank you to uh, Nico and Greg and Nick McClellan for the resources that have been uh, posted onto the chat. Um, just in terms of Nico's question, in terms of uh, Pacific states, uh, I still think that it's quite important to... Um, have Pacific states really take strong position on AUKUS. Obviously, the Fiji Prime Minister and the uh, New Zealand Prime Minister have both made very strong statements in reaction to AUKUS. Um, we are expecting the Pacific Islands Forum Secretary General to convene, uh, hopefully, uh, some discussions with member states uh, to respond to AUKUS. Um, this is separate to obviously civil society and movements responding to uh, AUKUS at this stage. Uh, but I think for, for sovereign uh, Pacific states, it's really important that they take strong hardline positions, particularly because Pacific Island countries, including Vanuatu, uh, Nauru, historically have opposed uh, the use of the ocean uh, space 
uh, for you know movement of nuclear weapons, uh, nuclear submarines, nuclear waste, but also to bring an end to nuclear testing. So I think the political class in the Pacific do have to make very strong statements in response to AUKUS. Um, really just very thankful to a lot of the international groups that have put out strong statements. I think in the next couple of days, we will be seeing uh, Pacific groups put out strong statements, uh, the churches, uh, civil society, academia, and obviously the NF5P movement uh, to respond to AUKUS. As I've said, AUKUS is just part of a long history of complex uh, intertwined uh, defense and military uh, alliances and pacts that really brings um, tensions very close uh, to home and quite consistently. So I think, you know, the, over the next couple of, of days and weeks, we'll be seeing uh, certainly quite a lot of statements come through. In terms of Greg Fry's question around leveraging of the Rarotonga Treaty, I really, really agree. That's probably one of our biggest strengths. Um, we are one of the only uh, regions that have has a nuclear-free uh, status and a treaty that governs that. Um, I think it would be quite useful to help with some research to help member states and parties to the treaty to look to see how they can leverage that in response to AUKUS, but also to uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy. Thanks, Chloe. Thanks, thanks, Maureen. Um, I might actually ask Sue to make her comment before um, giving the floor to Felix um, to, to talk again. Um, Sue, did you want to say something? Um, really just a few points. Um, firstly, now I wasn't able to get to it, but IPAN called a public meeting online forum um, which had 100 people at it and um, I gather there are a lot more who wanted to attend and probably because it was on Zoom it did mean that there were a lot of activists from all over the country who were able to attend and I think that was really promising even though I wasn't able to be there because I had something else on. The fact that that many people attended that meeting at fairly short notice is a really positive <laughs> thing because while there has been... Um, a peace network and anti-nuclear network, et cetera, in Australia for a very long time. It's a long time since we've had a big anti-nuclear or, um, or um, solidarity movement with Pacific um, peoples um, in a long time in Australia. And so there are a lot of younger activists who haven't had that experience and um, of some of the old movements, which were really huge movements. And so I think, I feel really, um, I think that gives me a lot of optimism. Um, obviously, there's a lot we're up against because we do have a government that is totally willing to go to war um, and the US, um, and it really doesn't matter, Biden or Trump, they're both, um, they're both really trying to um, stop China, you know, stop the economic development of China and um, and try and trying to drag us into a war. Um, but I, I think there is a lot of there are a lot of opportunities for collaboration between people in different countries in the region. And I know they're already 
some networks in existence. But I think um, the really critical thing is going to be bringing a new generation of activists in Australia, especially because Australia has joined this whole um, this whole thing. And um, I did want to ask Maureen to um, describe a little bit about the anti-nuclear network in the Pacific and which where it's which countries it's strongest in. Um, and so forth, because I think that would just be really, um, really useful. And um, I really look forward to working with activists in the coming in the coming period, because I think this is a big, um, you know, there has there has been a big change in Australia, which is really just the government's been able to carry out without. It, it is interesting that the media has just reported on this and there is, isn't even really a level of outrage from the bosses over the fact that some of them, not all of them, have lost a lot of trade with China and so forth. And so it is interesting that they've just, just totally changed tack and been able to sort of get away with it. But I think there is a history we have to tap into in terms of the anti-US bases movement and um and opposition to US um, sh ships coming to us, US nuclear warships coming to Australia, et cetera. Anyway, I'll just leave it there. But um, my question to Maureen. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. And uh, before I, um, we throw it to Maureen to answer your question, um, there is another question from Shane to the second speaker, to Joe. Um, do you envisage uh, New Zealand being pressured by the US to change their position on a ban on nuclear warships and submarines? And if so, what ways do you see the US pressuring New Zealand? It's a great question. Um, yeah, I guess I, I'll, I'll um, maybe I'll throw it to Joe to answer that question first and then um, back to Maureen. Yeah, look, in the 80s, the Yanks were um, very angry that New Zealand took that position. But, you know, they've kind of learned to live with it. Um, in recent years, there was opposition to the TPPA, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which was seen as American imperialist uh, economic wing to extend its um, its dominance in the region. And there was a quite a good mass movement on the streets against the TPPA, um, that Labour kind of supported. But then once they were in power and once Biden came uh, back in, in, in into power, um, they kind of signed anyway. So in terms of its economic um, uh, relationship with New Zealand, I think the uh, America, you know, still has a friend rather than an ally. Uh, here, but New Zealand uh, still has significant trade with China and and um, and, and and wants that to continue. In terms of um, bullying New Zealand into anything, I don't think that's going to work. I think that was what the violence in the seventies and eighties tried to do, and you know the the bombing of the uh, Rainbow Warrior in in Auckland Harbour was a real watershed moment uh, that I think. You know, people all, all often look back to foundation myths for these colonial settler states in the Pacific uh, and look to, you know, the Anzac spirit or something uh, akin. Actually, the first time the Anzacs were used was in the invasion of the Waikato, where Australian troops backed New Zealand colonial troops uh, here attacking 
uh, uh, the, uh, the Mary uh, area of Waikato, just south of Auckland, you know. Um, but I think all those things aside, I think one of the great kind of uh, examples of national sovereignty in the region was New Zealand um, taking that anti-nuclear uh, uh, pro-peace movement uh, the whole way from the streets, from the petitions, from the mass uh, marches and from the direct action of people confronting uh, nuclear powers um, to then legislate and to uh, and to create uh, an anti-nuclear uh, zone here. You know, it does show that those things um, are possible. And I don't think people will ever go back on that uh, here in, in Aotearoa. Thanks, Joe. And um, we did have that uh, question from Sue Bolton about um, the anti-nuclear network, um, where, it's, where it's strongest. Um, Maureen, if, if you would like to answer that, that'd be great. And then maybe I'll, I'll read another question that's um, been written in the chat box and we'll give Felix another chance to speak as well. Uh, Maureen, are you there? Uh, yeah, thanks, Sue, uh, for that particular question. I think we're in a process of uh, re-engaging with the nuclear free and independent Pacific movement uh, more widely. Uh, a lot of the emphasis has been on young people, uh, particularly university students across the region working on different issues. So uh, there's lots of engagements with um, uh, Hawaii, uh, you know, RMI um, here in Fiji in the Pacific, the hub of where the resistance movement was quite strong. Um, there's been a lot of efforts to reconnect with um, both Rancho by Tahiti, um, Kiribati, uh, and also again, so just, just a lot of work being done to re-engage. Obviously the churches have been quite strong uh, on this issue, they've been quite formidable. Uh, holding um, uh, power and bringing these kinds of legacy issues to the forefront. Uh, civil society is also re-engaging this in a big way, but really supporting the transfer of knowledge uh, and resistance and movement with our young people uh, right across the Pacific, as I've mentioned. Um, traditionally, Vanuatu has been a stronghold for the anti-nuclear movement. Uh, we expect to see um, some stronger clarification come through from Vanuatu uh, and many of our other island countries at this stage. So I think the recent AUKUS announcement will remobilize both political leadership in the Pacific on the issue of nuclear, uh, both the historical legacy issues, but also these new complex issues that's coming aboard, but also re-engaged with movements, with young people at the forefront. Thanks. Thank you, Maureen, for answering that question. Um, and we do have a, a, a question in the chat before, um, uh, Margie, before you speak. Um, it's from Claire Slatter. Um, she has a simple question. Um, how could the Australian government have entered into the AUKUS deal without consultation with the Australian people, given its enormous implications for Australia to say nothing of the rest of the region? Can it not be challenged? I know there is already strong resistance among activists. It is likely to reignite a massive anti-nuclear peace movement. Um, 
I'll um, let Felix answer that one. But um, in the meantime, Margie, did you want to make a comment? Yeah, I'm Margie. Um, Margie, sorry. <clears throat> so I just want to I just want to make a few points from my perspective. I'm from Wage Peace. I think we really need to um, notice some of the strong things that are happening. The contracts have been cancelled. This is like totally um, uh, un. Nobody predicted that they would con cancel such big contracts. And to know that they can cancel contracts is an incredible strength for us. Um, and there's no contract yet for the new submarines. There's some sort of agreement. They're right back. I listened to Rex Patrick today. They're right back before the point of contracting. So we're back in 2009, apparently, uh, which is all a good thing because the sub submarines are a pointless sort of piece of capitalism, as we call it. It's not about defence necessarily. Um, and I really encourage people to listen to the uh, interview with Rex Patrick and read what he's written around the place. But he did an interview with Andy Payne on the paradigm shift. It's a 20-minute interview. It is very important. He's, um, he's a submariner. He's from South Australia. He knows the issues of the submarines better than anybody, and he's on our side, right? This is also unheard of for us, is to have somebody in the parliament who understands the issue and agrees with us. So um, I think I really encourage people to listen to that um, discussion with, with Rex Patrick. He makes the point, which I have never heard anybody else make, that this, the Japanese have 20 subs and the Koreans have 12 or something like that. And that if we were really wanting to collaborate in the region, we can collaborate with their subs, using their subs, if, you know, if, if that's really what people wanted to do. Um, so um, anyway, so I think it's very important to listen to Rex Patrick and follow his lead to some extent. However, I also think that we need to focus on the corporations. We, we don't hear the word Talus at all, and yet Talus is a major part of Naval, and Talus is also operating and taking new contracts all over, over the country. Um, it's, a, it's due to take another contract on some um, completely unneeded uh, tanks, for example, in the next uh, six months. So we need to look and we actually need to target what we're thinking in terms of the corporations because they're much, they're, they're much more accessible. And the parliament has not, in 30 years of working in the parliamentary sphere, we have failed over and over to get any outcomes in the parliamentary sphere. And we have to stop pretending there, there are answers there. Um, we have allies there, such as Rex Patrick, and we have the Greens, but we don't have many answers there until we build a movement and can make the parliament do what we want it to do. And the Labor Party, there's an excellent uh, uh, a critique of the Labor Party's response in the Minidu, um uh, blog, I think, this morning. So I really just encourage people to look at those positive elements and to remember that what interests the young people in this movement um, is not what interests us and to stop pretending that where our minds were 20 or 30 years ago is where we need to bring people's minds now. I think we need to listen to the people of the Pacific. Um, and we need to listen to First Nations people. And what we know is that young people are interested in doing that as well. So um, uh, we need to follow their lead and find ways of um, of supporting First Nations interests because that's what young people, they're interested in addressing the colonial legacy 
That's what the young activists are interested in. And they're also interested in colonial violence as it plays out today. Um, and so that's police violence and other uh, types of, you know, extant colonial violence. So we need to think about our discourses in modern ways and stop pretending that some, suddenly some people are just going to come over to where we are. There is a lot of outrage and there's a lot of interest and the young people are interested in too. So there's, uh, it's, um, and there's also been a lot of good stuff written already in the last uh, three weeks or two weeks or whatever it is. So I just wanted to make those points. Thank you for that contribution. Uh, uh, I might just get Jacob Gret if he wanted to um, speak about a, a certain action coming up, um, an event coming up, um, and then we'll throw it over to Felix because I haven't given Felix a chance to respond to those questions. So, uh, Jacob, did you just want to? Yeah, look, very quickly, I just want to raise one very quick note, and that is uh, just on the submarines. People are talking about it like we're going to build them and they're 10 years away. There's also a very real possibility that some submarines that are based in Guam that the US is just about to retire may come to Australia on a land-lease basis. So it's not like the French subs where they're in the not-too-distant, you know, the never-never. But anyway, just keep your eyes on that, the LA-class subs in, in um, Guam. But on um, Thursday, the 7th of October... Renegade activists are hosting a thing we're calling the anti, or sorry, the raucous anti orcus caucus. We've got Scott Ludlam, Clinton Fernandez, Dave Sweeney's, um, Talia Mangianoni from Fiji, um, and a few other people, and Guy Rundle, Flick Ruby, um, all together. And the idea about it is not just to bring together the various issues about AUKUS, but then to break into discussion rooms within Zoom and based on states or political affiliations or whatever, to get people to organise to the next, what they're going to do next. So um, renegadeactivists.org, if people want to check it out and register for that. Thank you. Thanks, Jacob. And thank you for posting the petition link. Um, so if everyone can see that in the chat box. Um, I'll throw it over to Felix to answer uh, Claire's question. Um, I don't know if you want me to read it out again, uh, but yeah, if you wanted to just uh, comment on that question and then there are a couple more people on the, in the uh, wanting to ask a question and yeah, we'll probably throw it back to all the speakers again to just conclude um, for just some concluding remarks. Thanks, Felix. Yeah, thanks, Chloe. And um, firstly, I just want to say the uh, raucous anti-Orcus caucus, top name, I love it. Um, yeah, so, well, with Claire's um, question there, so, I mean, she's totally right, and I think a few of the other question questions have touched on it as well. Like, nothing is set in stone, and obviously the French contract was ripped up. But, you know, also, for instance, in Melbourne here, when um, there was that huge movement against the uh, the road project, the um, East-West Link, those contracts were signed too, and, in fact, works had started on it, and... Uh, there was a huge concerted campaign to stop that. And it, it worked, at least for now. So it's always possible to stop these things. And, you know, it's, it's whatever's physically possible. That's what we can do. As long as we put pressure in the right places and we mobilise people from all over Australia and the whole region, and we need to show a lot of solidarity here with Pacific Island people who are also affected by this, we, we, can, we really can um, stop these things and... and bring it around because uh yeah it, it, we're not we're not just subjected to 
the whims of the political leadership class. You know, they they can try and make the, the decisions for us, but if we mount a strong opposition, bringing in work, working people, ordinary people, movements of people on the streets when that's possible, we can absolutely push back against this and we can make it politically impossible for them to, to get it through. So we, yeah, we absolutely shouldn't give up or anything and just think it's all it's all over because Scott Morrison announced it a few days ago, not by a long shot. And yeah, I do have to point out, I did forget to bring up that um, that point that Stephen from IPAN mentioned uh, about the uh, the leasing of the stubs. So um, that uh, yeah, that is that is very concerning. Uh, Peter Dutton did point out that if uh, if 10 or 20 years is too long to wait for our own subs. We can just bring them over from the US. We'll pay them a, a hefty fee, of course, and they'll basically do whatever that whatever it is that they would want to do anyway in the region. But, um, you know, we'll be responsible for it and we'll be paying the bills. So um, and that's that could easily become a much more immediate campaign to work on. If any if anything concrete comes out of that, we'll have to fight against that because that's, that's in the here and now, really. If, if nuclear submarines get brought over from America and get, um, you know, landed on Australian shores um, in possibly a US naval base, who knows? But um, we've definitely got to fight against that. Um, I was trying to think. IPAN, that was, that's a, yeah, I tried to join that meeting before, but unfortunately hit the 100 person limit and I was a little bit late, so I uh, couldn't join in on that. But it does show that there's a huge amount of support for the fight back against this out there. And we just need to mobilize it and, and organize it as much as we can. Obviously things are difficult at the moment, but um, you know, there's, we're not, just because we're in COVID lockdown doesn't mean that we, uh, we can get pushed around and not fight back. Uh, I think that was everything that I could really remember. I'm sorry if I forgot some of the, the um, questions there. So I'll uh, throw it back to Chloe and the, uh, any more questions? Thanks, Felix. So I think you uh, you got all the questions. And if, if anybody wants to um, ask a question using the mic, just just write your name in the chat and ask the question instead of um, writing the whole thing in the in the chat box. That would help. Uh, Jim, did you still want to speak? Oh, hi everyone. Uh, it's Jim uh, McElroy here from Sydney um, in Gadigal Land. I just wanted to follow up. Margie's point, Margaret's point, is about about what uh, Rex Patrick spoke about, and I heard I didn't hear that interview, but I heard the interview on ABC, and an absolutely salient point that he made, as far as I'm concerned, is that nuclear subs means a nuclear industry, and that is where our scammer Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who's the biggest scammer in the history of Australian politics. Is, 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 is saying that the, we can have these submarines without having a nuclear industry. This is a lie, an absolute lie. As Patrick pointed out, you, if you have got nuclear submarines, you must have an onshore capability to service and repair those subs and, and keep them going. Otherwise, as he pointed out, you could have them break down in Darwin Harbour and sit there for three months until you fly someone out from the United States who supposedly knows how to do it. The, the, the two things are absolute. We have got to seize on this point, and I think um, 
following on, also on the point about um, about winning the youth over to this campaign, we have to remember going back to the anti-Iranian movement of the 1980s, 70s and 80s, we had the largest mass movement, probably possibly larger than the anti-Vietnam movement in numbers. In, in Sydney, we had a rally of 200,000 people in Sydney. I think it's the biggest one we've ever had in 1984. And I think that we have to try to draw that link and say, yes, these people are going to foist a nuclear <laughs> industry on us. Doesn't matter what they say, that is what's going to happen. And we can use that to try to build a movement around that particular issue, along with the issue of um, combating the new Cold War on China and the, the so-called defence issues. But I think it must be pointed out and absolutely emphasised in our propaganda that we are going to get a nuclear industry of some sort or other if we go ahead with those subs. So, yeah, I think that's a critical part of our propaganda. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Jim. Uh, we have uh, next John uh, Ebel. Did you want to speak? Yes, um, I, I came a bit late, uh, but I'm just, uh, I think uh, we should stress that uh, the Labour Party has been absolutely negligent and appalling in this. They've completely capitulated to uh, the Liberals. And I think what we should be emphasising to the public is the fact that these nuclear submarines, apart from constituting a danger uh, of a nuclear war with China, they are floating uh, nuclear reactors. Now, if they are going to be um, in cities like Adelaide, Melbourne, Brisbane, Sydney, and so on, there is a danger of nuclear accidents, and I, I think that should be emphasized. Uh, I think the last um, time we did that, I think that was actually emphasized in the 80s. Um, and I think we should really be hammering the fact that uh, we are facing the danger of a nuclear war. Now, I just read an interview with uh, Kevin Rudd in a German uh, magazine called The Spiegel. And uh, Rudd is... Uh, he seems to have become far more belligerent than he was previously. Uh, well, he, he claimed that in the past that he had a conciliatory position towards China. Now he seems to have jumped on uh, the whole bandwagon uh, of um, anti-Chinese jingoism. Uh, and he's... Uh, basically saying how we have to defend open society and so on and so forth. I posted this on my Facebook page, um, so you can have a look at it. But, yeah, I, I think we've got to get allies. We have to get a, a big uh, mass movement mobilized on the basis of these key issues. And I think most people in Australia would be, well, cognizant or aware that they don't want to be involved in a nuclear war or have their children annihilated through um, a nuclear war, whether it's deliberate or accidental. 
that's it. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, sorry, I just had trouble unmuting. Um, if there are no other, um, if there's no one else that wants to ask a question, I mean, there's some uh, great commentary in the chat box. Um, uh, I might actually, we might actually just wrap up the meeting soon. Um, but before we do, maybe I'll just, you know, if the speakers wanted to, um, you know, say some final um, things, that would be great. Um, did you, Maureen, did you want to say anything, um, have any final comments to make? Um, probably just to say that, you know, we, uh, as specific movements uh, looking into Australia, I, it would really be important that um, Australian activists really hold the Australian government to account. Um, I think that this ongoing burden to um, rally uh, specific voices to really hold Australia to account. I think we can do that from position of strength, which is within the kinds of uh, institutions where Australia is a member uh, and is in the neighborhood of the Pacific. I think we've got some really fundamentally difficult problems with the Australian government uh, and it's not just the current Scott Morrison government, but certainly even Labour governments have been quite problematic in terms of their relationship with the Pacific. The fact that they have not consulted the Pacific at all is indicative of the way Australia views the Pacific. And so this ongoing problem, whether it's on climate change, on nuclear issues, we really have to emphasise that the best thing that we can do is really to take on the Australian government within Pacific uh, institutions like the Forum, uh, where Australia is just one of. But I think it's really, yes, I just want to end with that, really to say, yes, we should definitely mobilize and coalesce. But we know, even with on the climate front, Australia remains highly problematic. Its position remains highly problematic given the kinds of historical issues that Pacific peoples and countries have to face. So, you know, if we're not consulted on security defense backs, it is extremely difficult for us then to, to, to be able to square with the Australian government. Um, so I think we would be looking for the leadership to emerge from within Australia, the movements and the NGOs. Um, and we certainly would prefer that our leadership call in the Australian government um, to consult with the Pacific in the Pacific. Um, I think we've got some really strong uh, positions uh, where we think security should be prioritized for Pacific people. Um, and so I think we need to be looking at that, uh, but definitely this disproportionate burden consistently on Pacific activists to consistently front up um, I think that's, that's really, really quite difficult at this stage. At the stage, we need to be looking at Australia and challenging that if it wants to be part of the Pacific in the neighbourhood, it needs to do better. And if we can start with the basis, and that's consultation um, with political leadership, but citizens of the region, I mean, you're bringing a threat so very, very close to home, and yet we have no say in it. 
So again, just this disproportionate dependency on specific movements, we would be looking to Australian movements to lead on this particular front. Thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Uh, and Joe, did you have any final comments? Kira, thanks to all our speakers and a very informative session. And thank you to Socialist Alliance for, for hosting this. Look, we are prepared to do whatever we need to do over here in Aotearoa to support people in Australia and in the Pacific region. Um, it is good, it is useful that there is a, a, a nuclear-free uh, nation with a with, with a law um, that you can look to, that you can say that is achievable. And look, listening to um, the contributions there, I think uh, it is very important to not be back in the 60s, 70s and 80s, but to understand that there were mass movements at those times uh, against nuclear disarmament and, um, and for ecological justice, CND and Greenpeace, uh, were very important in 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 building the movement uh, here. So tapping into the climate justice movement of today, where young people are, where actually the nuclear lobby might try and reinvent itself as uh, a safer form of energy to uh, fossil fuels. We need to make this point and kind of create a nuclear disarmament movement for the 21st century. I have no doubt that the uranium mining industry in Australia uh, is, is going to be one of the beneficiaries of this uh, uh, treaty. So the any kind of uh, movement of direct action against uranium mining with Aboriginal people and unions, et cetera, uh, you know, seems to be uh, where, where, where it will be, uh, where, where the subs will come onto uh, Australian soil, if you like, uh, would be, would be uh, one of the flashpoints to organise. And so thank you very much uh, for giving us a chance to speak. And uh, if anybody needs to use us for uh, the example anywhere else, we'll try and get you some other speakers from Aotearoa as well. Susie Newburn, who was on that Rainbow Warrior that was bombed, is still an activist today, would be a very good speaker for, for uh, future forums. Thanks, Joe. That's that's really helpful. We'll take you up on that. Uh, and our last speaker, Felix, did you have any final comments to make? Thanks, Laura. Yeah, well, uh, mainly just to thank the other speakers, Maureen and Joe, for their terrific talk. They're both really uh, interesting and I learned a lot from them. So, yeah, and, and all the good work that they're doing is so important. Um, I, I think I just want to reiterate the fact that uh, it, it, this... The deal that it's been made, the ARCUS deal, is it's sailed through, and I think that um, the, rule, the ruling uh, leadership they feel like they've got away scot free at the moment because there's not a huge, you know, they, they, there was no opposition from the political parties or at least from the Labor Party. There's nothing from the media that's just let it sail through, and the um, main capitalists' voices have been silent about this, and I think that they. They figure that it's, it's better in their long-term interests rather than whatever pain they'll suffer from, you know, loss of revenue from China if the trade war blows up. But I think that they're, they're wrong about this and I think that there is a significant anti-nuclear and anti-military, anti-war movement in Australia. And I think that that's going to become obvious um, once more and more of the deal comes out and 
once people get organised and the opposition is shown, it's demonstrated either on the streets or just it'll just billow out, I think, through word of mouth. And I think it's important to, to not feel despair that it's just going to sail through and that's going to be the end of it because quite often opposition to these things, it takes a little bit of momentum to get going, but when it does, it's, it's really powerful and um, it's important that everyone gets involved in whatever movements are pushing against this and we'll work, all work together and we can, well, I think we can, we can stop this if we, um, if we raise our voices and, and work together on this. So, yeah, that's all I'll say. Thanks so much, Felix. And thank you to all the speakers and um, to all of you for attending and for your questions and contributions. We will continue to show solidarity with the people in the Indo-Pacific Islands and help to get that um, anti-nuclear, anti-war message out. Uh, that concludes the end of the meeting. So um, please stay safe and please stay in touch. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.